super effective. Shut the doors. Hey, we're so uh, glad you're at church. My name's Colby, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we've been going through the book of Mark. And uh, maybe just as a, a little bit of a lead-in, um, I was driving through Bayfield this week, and uh, I saw someone had already put out Halloween decorations. Joel, this is not you. Halloween decorations. And we're not even in October yet, all right? Kept driving, and I saw Christmas decorations. You lunatics, right? Like, we're not there yet. Let it breathe. Is summer really that over, all right? Um, As we begin to get into, uh, you know, costumes are coming out. At uh, I know for all those pagan people that celebrate, you know, Halloween and all that stuff, the costumes are coming out, and... Uh, I think uh, Spirit of Halloween cannibalized Pier 1 down at the mall, right? Which is what Spirit of Halloween does. It waits for one of your businesses to go out, and they just move in a store there. And I grew up in a, a, a town or an area where we would go um, to haunted houses. You know what I'm talking about? Where they set up this whole operation, charge you lots of money to make you scared to death, all right? And you would go in there, and for me... One of the most creepy parts of a haunted house that I had been to was that they will have inside of this building some room where they have killed all the lights. And you will walk into a space that is completely blacked out. Has anybody ever been in a room like that? And you can't see your hand in front of your face. And here's what begins to happen is when you can't see even a foot in front of your face, you begin to put your hands out and to grope for any sort of wall or thing. Like, even here in Colorado, if you're at your house and all the lights are turned out and you can't see, you know, you're trying to catch a coffee table with the shin, right? Like, you're going to trip over something in there. So you begin to grope for something to lead you or you begin to try to find some point of reference so that you can navigate the room. If you have a family member, maybe that got cataracts, or you have a family member because of the uh, Wolford Brimley diabetes, right, that began to lose their eyesight, that person, as they diminished in their eyesight, had to basically become functional with minimal sight. They had to adjust to living with a level of blindness, And it's amazing that some people that get diabetes and um, they lose some of their eyesight, they, they, they learn to still cook for themselves or they learn to still find places around the house. What happens is, is that they adjust to blindness. Here's why I, I mentioned that the story today is someone who has his sight, but it's, it's not perfect. And I think that it's a good description of a lot of Christians in their walk with Christ. They have sight, but they have an adjustment for a level of blindness that's in their lives. They've come to live with a minimal understanding of who Jesus is, with a minimal understanding of the kingdom, and they've come to adjusted living. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that our enemy, Satan, is in active mode trying to blind you. That every day you wake up, you have spiritual forces at work trying to dull and take out of focus your sight. Many Christians unconscious to this live with a blinded vision of who God is. And so here's what the story today um, I think is going to dig up. We're going to get into it, get out of it, and we'll, we'll move on. But I think what Jesus is going to teach us today, some of us need to be touched by God again and refocused. Amen? Because we just go out of focus. And so we need to be touched again that we might not see vaguely, but that we might see crystal clear. All right? And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to jump into the text. All right? Uh, Would you bow your hearts and minds in preparation to hear God's word? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, you are the one that has caused anyone here that sees to see. You have given us not only the blessing of physical sight, but God, you have caused some of us through the gospel to see heavenly things, to see Christ on the cross, crucified for our sins, to see the resurrection in our own lives. And God, if there's any of us that with spiritual eyes, behold the wondrous things of Scripture. It's because of you, so all praise to your name. You're the God of vision. You're the God of sight. You're the God of full disclosure. You're the God of understanding. And so, God, would you come and illumine our hearts and minds that they might understand your word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, if you don't come and enable me to accurately preach your word and enable my brothers and sisters to hear your word, none of us are getting anything out of this. And so glorify your name by touching the eyes of our hearts again. By bringing yourself into the center of our focus. God, you gave us this passage of scripture with intention. And so God, help us to get all from it that you want us to get. God, make Jesus explicit and glorious in this passage and cause us to respond in worship. Father, we surrender this time to you. We leave all other stuff outside this room. God, we just want more of you. And so come and pastor us. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Open your Bible if you've got one to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we've been talking about this series inside of Mark that Mark kind of created for us where he rolls up on the Pharisees and he indicts them and their blindness. And we've said there's kind of a running series because there's connective tissue in the text between what he encounters with the Pharisees and what he encounters with the disciples and what he encounters with the man that we're going to discuss today and then the full confession of that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that's going to happen in next week's passage. Next week's passage is the center of the whole book of the Gospel of Mark. 
It's literally a continental divide. We've been leading up to Jesus as the Christ. And after next week's sermon about the great confession that he is the Christ, it is going to be a downhill run towards the cross and the resurrection, okay? And so we've had a lead up up until all the months that we've been through this book up until next week's sermon. In the first week that we talked about this idea of blindness, we said blindness spiritually is a human malady that is across the whole earth. You can go to the Philippines and there is spiritual blindness and you can go to southern Alabama and there's spiritual blindness. Blindness is a condition of the fall. And we said without Jesus, the light of the world, there is no vision. And so the Pharisees came upon Jesus in earlier part of chapter 8 seeking a sign. And Jesus said, no sign will be given. Because these cats are coming to him trying to argue, trying to debate, trying to fight. And, and Jesus even, here's the thing, he questions the thing that they're asking for, whether it would even really help them if they got it. It's like, I can give you all the neon signs of Vegas, but if you don't have spiritual eyes to behold it, what good is all the neon if you can't see it? And so he indicts their blindness. And and the text says that when Jesus encountered these types of religious people, it caused him in his soul to deep sigh. There's people that can claim to believe in God that if you hitch your life up next to them, it will be exhausting. There are churches full of people that will wear you out with a lot of rules that have nothing to do with the things of God. Jesus deep sighs. There's ways in which people that claim to believe in God can wear God out. Then it goes into the disciples, and he turns to the disciples, and he says, okay, if they're blind, then he goes to these, these casts that are his, and they're on the boat together, and Jesus gives them kind of a warning as a riddle. Remember we talked about this? And he says, this warning is, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herodians. And we talked about these two types of leaven, one being dead, lifeless religion of the Pharisees that's in itself godless, and the other is getting obsessed with politics. And power. Which I know no Christians struggle with that today. But it's just in the Bible for our kids or whatever. And it says beware of this leaven. Leaven being a decaying substance when put under fire releases gas and inflates something. It is a picture of the inflated posture of the heart that is pride. And he says, he comes to him and says beware of this substance that if... A little bit of teaching, which Matthew tells us it's the teaching of these people, that if you adopt it in your life, it'll ruin you. He says, beware of it. And the disciples, like a good church, when God speaks, they start to have a discussion about what does God mean. Right? God speaks, we don't understand, so we have a meeting. And they begin to discuss, and and Jesus says, are you seeing and yet don't see? Different from the Pharisees, he acknowledges the disciples actually have the thing in their skull to see, but they're not using it. You can have a Christian who is born again, 
who has spiritual eyes to see that can be just as blinded as a lost person because they're paying more attention to each other's faults than they're listening to Jesus. And that's what we kind of discussed uh, like two weeks ago. And so now, he's going to illustrate these two dynamics that are at play between blindness and vague sight with an illustration of healing a man that is born blind, and he's going to heal him in two stages. The only occurrence of two-stage healing anywhere in Scripture. It's phenomenal. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's illustrating the reality he has spoken to them with a living parable in the man with blindness. It's going to be a living parable. Um, When they make movies, uh, they do this thing called storyboarding. So if you're going to propose a, mo- like, propose a movie, the author has to write the script, and they write all that out, and the dialogue and all this stuff. But then they, get, they bring in an illustrator, and they like draw what the scenes would look like if it became a real movie. Then it gives people who are not inside the author's brain a vision of what the film would look like fleshed out. And so Jesus is going to walk this back the exact same way that they storyboard movies. He's going to say, I'm going to give you a physical example of exactly the dynamic that goes on in every single Christian's life. All right, so look in verse um, 22. And they came to Bethsaida. Pause. Bethsaida has been mentioned in the scripture previously. Okay, Bethsaida means house of fish. Ironically, Jesus has fished out uh, three disciples from there. Peter, Andrew, and Philip are from Bethsaida. Um, Bethsaida was a town that was mixed between both Jews and Gentiles. And so it's a town that in Matthew chapter 11, I don't know if they'll have this up there, in chapter 11, verse 21, it had a woe pronounced over it. Now, this is not like the 1990s woe, like woe. Woe in the Bible is a way of saying cursed. So let let me put it to you this way. Bethsaida as a town is a town that Jesus used colorful language to denounce their unbelief. He used colorful language to denounce their unbelief. They were a monument as a town to blindness and unbelief because they saw evidence and signs and miracles and Jesus himself, and they still chose their sin over him. And Jesus comes and says, woe to Bethsaida. Woe to Chorazin. Because if the miracles that were done in you were done in, now if you've been with us in the past months, Tyre and Sidon. Y'all remember those places? Like the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile, she's from Tyre, right? Jesus says that if the miracles done in Bethsaida was done in Tyre, where the Gentiles are at, they would have repented long ago. You want to put an indictment on a group of Jews? Say, if God would have done to the Gentiles what he did to you, they would have repented. He casts woe. He says, this, is a, this place has had sufficient amount of witness. I'm removed. No more witnessing to Bethsaida. They, are, they have chosen their curse. Because they have chosen their sin over the evidence of who Christ presented himself to be to them. He says, woe. This miracle will be the last in Galilee recorded in Mark. 
is parallel to the deaf mute that we talked about in chapter 7 because he pulls them out of town, he touches them, and it's rooted in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. We've talked about this between the deaf mute and this healing. There's a unique, par- there's a unique connection to the messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. Why is healing of the blind person significant? Well, let me just say it to you like this. When Johnny B., John the Baptist, was in prison and he was questioning, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another to come? One point that Jesus makes when he sends John's disciples back to him to tell him an answer is, tell John that the blind are receiving their sight. That's one point that Jesus makes to John that he knows, John knowing his Old Testament, knowing Isaiah chapter 35 verse 5, if John knows his Old Testament, Jesus says, Tell him that the blind receive sight. Because John believes his Bible. And so, this is incredibly significant. Bethsaida, and some people, I want you to underline that, or make note of that. Some people, what's their names? No idea. Nameless. They brought to him a blind man And they begged him to touch him. So how did the blind man, who likely uh, was not born blind, he probably lost his sight. We get that because he's going to talk about trees and things. So a lot of people say maybe he was like playing for football and got the, you know, the CTE, the concussion, like knocked the lights out. So one time he knew what trees were, gets knocked out. Now he's a blind man. Uh, A lot of times they become fixtures in the background. You know, just like you drive into uh, Walmart over in Durango, and there's just homeless people there, like, asking for money. Sometimes the easiest thing is to look away from them. You know, even we see the apostles sometimes healing at the gate called beautiful. People with infirmities, they become, like, they become surrounding fixtures, but they're, they're not actually people that get engaged. So, how did he, who's probably at the front gate of the city, begging, how did that guy find his way to wherever Jesus was? I mean, that's really the question. How did he go from being blind where if left to himself, he would be groping in darkness trying to find Jesus to where he's led to Jesus where Jesus can grab him by the hand? Here's the difference between the two places. Somebody brought him. Somebody brought him. Somebody went over and said, Brother, I got to get you over here to Jesus. Because if I can get you to Jesus, I know Jesus can do something for you. Neither I nor nobody else can do for you. Somebody brought him to Jesus. And we've seen this throughout. It's nameless. Do you realize most people throughout all of church history have come to Christ because of not some well-named Billy Graham, St. Augustine evangelist in church history. Most people came to Christ, I would say in this room, from a lot of nameless Christians who just helped teach Awana, who was just a co-worker who shared the gospel with you, who was a pastor in a small town. Most Christians are brought to Christ and saved 
through just some nameless person being faithful, y'all. Who cares that you're not a pastor or a deacon or you have a stage or a platform or a podcast or a Twitter account? How many people in this room could name five Christians that you know led other people to Christ and most of us have no idea who that person is? The story of Christianity is people sharing Jesus like he's gossip over the back fence. It's not celebrity pastors. It's faithful servants. Somebody brought him to Jesus and begged. His faith, the blind man's faith, is not even in view in this text. It's their faith. It's them. They're the one that have faith for him. They're the one dragging him and, and begging so talk to me, church. Whose butt are you dragging to church and begging for Jesus to meet? Who are you, who are you dragging to, to house church? Who are you dragging to Awana? Who are you dragging to coffee and begging that Jesus just changes their life? Because they were dragging people. I talked to a, a guy, a, a pastor in another part of the country about church planting. And one of the things that he said is the most critical thing for starting a church and planting a church is this, this phrase. I've never heard it said this way, but it makes all the sense in the world. He called them gatherers. He said, if you have a church that has a gatherer, it's somebody who just has a heart for the harvest. Somebody that goes out and just wants to reach people. Someone that gathers people. He says, you can plant a church. He says, but if you get a whole bunch of attenders, but no gatherers, that, that church plan is dead. That church plan is dead. It's not going to work. You've got to have people that go out, this is an old-timey phrase, the highways and the hedges, right? People, you've got to have people that go out to make sure, no matter what happens, they're making sure people encounter Jesus. They drag and they beg. Now, there's a pop culture view here that maybe gets in our way a little bit. I'm going to take this rabbit trail. Just follow me for a second. I grew up in hearing church sermons, and I'm saying that your faith cannot be your mother's. It can't be your daddy's faith. It can't be your grandmama's, grandpa's faith. It can't be your best friend's faith. Right? It can't be your pastor's faith. Your faith has got to be your own. Anybody kind of heard that similar point before, right? That's a pop culture. Yes and amen. I believe that. What, what they're saying is, is that you must own your faith. It has to be yours. You can't, it can't always be leaning on somebody else's. Amen. Yes and amen. But, but the danger that we get into is thinking that God gave me faith just for me. That while it is my own faith and that he has imparted that to me, he did not mean for me to exclusively use all of my prayer life on me. God sovereignly ordained to give you faith that you might exercise that faith for others. God ordained to use your preaching 
You're serving. You're leading others by the hand in faith to Jesus. He wants to use the faith he gave you for others. And at one time, when you were not a believer, somebody else was believing for you. Somebody else was believing for you. Somebody else was grabbing your dumb, blind hand and leading you through the haunted house. Somebody else was praying for you. Somebody else was witnessing to you. So while your faith is your own, it's not meant to be spent on yourself exclusively. Church, everything you do for Christ, you must do it by faith. Your faith must be your own, but it was never meant to be exclusively used on yourself. It's meant to lead people by the hand to Jesus. The blind man was brought to Jesus by somebody else that believed in him. And he used their faith so that he could see him. Now let me say the flip side of this. 23, begged they touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. This is now Jesus. It was so awesome. They brought him by the hand to Jesus, leading him. Now Jesus is taking him by the hand outside the city. A city that is cursed, a city that is doomed for destruction. Jesus, if you've read the Pilgrim's Progress, this picture is unbelievable. Leading them out of the city of destruction. Now here's the flip side of this coin. On one side, we got Christians that our business of why God has left you on this earth is to drag people to Jesus and to, in faith, pray for them and to lead them right. So that's one side of this thing. The flip side of the coin is the blind man has to be willing to be led. He's got to be humble enough to reach out his hand and to trust and to be led. That's the flip side of this coin. Here's the truth. Some of you will not be led anywhere. Some of you will not be led. Even if someone loves you and is trying to bring you to Jesus over a sin or over an issue, over counsel, some of you would have to be brought kicking and screaming. Amen? Some of us here, we're just hard-hearted. I mean, I, let me get pastoral for you for a second. Sometimes people in this church will come to any one of our elders seeking counsel, seeking input, seeking shepherding. And we might give you counsel on maybe something to do with your marriage or something to do with your parenting or something to do with your faith, some place to use your gifts and how to serve. And we're going to flip a coin whether you're going to take that counsel or not. And you know it's one of the most discouraging, hard things about pastoring. And it's in that moment that I totally understand my heart between me and God as well, by the way. Where I know God's calling me to do something, and I can just be like, that's the last thing I want to do. But I'm just going to be, be real with you. Sometimes we try to shepherd you and lead you in a way that we think is good for you and your family. 
and some of you will not be led. And I get the reasons why. Because you can look at any one of our elders and say, but you don't got 2020 vision. Right? You got like 2030. And if you're going to wait to only be led by Christians that God brings in your life that have 2020 Jesus vision, you are never going to be led by anybody else in the church. Because all of us are imperfect. Amen? And yet God has given us to one another that we might bring out the best version of each other because we're in each other's lives. There's lots of people in this church that may not be as good at preaching as I am, and yet God has used them in other parts of my life to lead me. Amen? Let me me give you an illustration. Maybe this will bring home. One is is that um, I grew up... uh, the, the baseball strike happened when I was really, like, at the end of elementary years. So I completely got out of baseball, and I started playing golf, which is helpful. You, a golf swing and a baseball swing are different, right? And so I started playing golf, and I grew up in the Tiger Woods era, all right? This is before the sex addiction and wrecking cars and all that. Sorry. So take it back. This is just when you had a Tiger Woods, like, thing on your golf clubs, right? And I love Tiger Woods. Everybody wanted to be just like him. He looked like a defensive back could just crush the ball, and um, we, we would just watch everything that he did, all the masters. I know some people watch golf earlier. You're a Jack Nicklaus fan. That's totally fine, but I love Tiger. Tiger was like the main golf person when I was in, and there was this thing that occurred to me in all of my stubbornness and unteachableness and hard-heartedness that I learned from Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods at one time was the best golfer on the planet. Y'all remember that? Like all the buzz? And yet, I remember watching a video of his caddy and his coach correcting him. And I was like, what is, that guy, surely he's got it figured out. Swing it, right? Harden down the middle, right? Like, Tiger Woods had a golf coach, listen to this, that could not play golf as well as him. Tiger Woods had a golf coach that could not play golf as well as him. And yet he could listen to that coach as whatever he was saying as though it was gospel. Tiger Woods became better because he was teachable. You could lead him by the hand. See, the flip side of this is some of us, because of our pride, will not be led by the hand. I mean, has anybody in here realized you've asked your wife to do something before and simply the fact that you asked her to do that, it's an absolute no. But then like four hours later, somebody else comes and asks them, like, yeah, that's a great idea, right? Sometimes it's just who's doing the asking can change the whole paradigm shift. Jesus comes as the good shepherd to lead them out of the city of destruction to restore him privately that he may become a living parable publicly. How does he do it? All right, let's get into it. Verse 23, he grabbed him by the hand and he led him out of the village. I love the Old Testament picture of Jesus the shepherd. He leads leads them in and brings them out. There's a whole Bible study over that. And when he had spit on his eyes, I don't know, that's like Hank Williams Jr. beach nut. I don't know what's going on here. 
and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, one thing about the spit is that they saw it as an exact representation of you. There's things that spit meant in that culture that clearly don't mean the same thing today. Right? Um, even we have this um, phrase in English called spit and image. Anybody know the spit and image? I always thought that was spitting, minus the G, image. It's actually spit and image. Spit and image is the exact representation because your spit was an image of yourself. It's a really old thing. But if you get redneck enough, it's just spit and image, right? And so that's where that, that comes from is there's an old idea of that this issue of you was a representation of you. All I know is if I'm a blind man and somebody spit on my eyes, I'm coming out swinging. You know what I mean? And so I don't know what kind of like experience that he's having of Jesus spitting on his eyes, but it's a trip. And he lay, spit on his eyes and he laid his hands on him and he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people. This is like the sixth sense or whatever. But they look like trees walking. So this is where I use my Lord of the Rings ints in Lord of the Rings, the tree people, or uh, Marvel, Groot. Apparently he just sees a bunch of Groots out here. I see people, but they're trees walking. So if I had to describe this, does he see? Yes. Does he see well? No. If we backed up to the disciples in the previous passage, do they see while they're arguing about bread? Yes. Do they see well? No. He's a living parable of what happens in our Christian journey. Do you see him? Yes. Do you see him clearly? No. Can anybody in here tell the truth in here and say, there was a time in my life where I know I was born again, I know I was saved, I know I was his, but I did not have a good vision of him and I was not following closely. See, there's, there's a thing. There's believers and there's unbelievers, but there's also times where believers can lead, lead a defeated lifestyle. They can be, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, blinded by the enemy in such a way God wants them to see men, and instead they see trees walking. Does that make sense? Have you ever been there? Where you know Jesus in truth. I know him in truth. I'm walking with him. I know him in truth. I just don't know him exhaustively. Like there's a, whether between, between sin that's blinded me, or just ignorance where I don't know him well enough, I just don't see clearly. Can you say that's been you? Where if you, you're his, but your vision for the kingdom of God is foggy. It's dim. It's obscured. It's hazy. You chase after money so it goes out of focus. You chase after sex so it's partial. You try to serve two masters and you go cross-eyed. I mean, are, are you seeing? Yes, kind of, sort of, maybe. Trees walking. I mean, I mean, he must be on something from Colorado. I don't know what he's taking.
The powerful thing about this miracle is that it's not for Bethsaida. Bethsaida's had all the miracles they want. They've had enough witness and they've rejected it. And even we could say that this miracle is not exclusively for the blind man. This miracle is for the men standing around that look like trees. It's for the disciples. It's for us on the outside seeing Jesus do this to this man. He says he put his hands on him a second time. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything diabolepo in Greek. It's unbelievable. He saw everything clearly. Dia is the word through. Balepo is the word for sight. In this 22 through 26, there is nine different Greek words that deal with seeing. Some of them compound. Basically, the Bible uses almost every word for vision it can in this short passage. This last one, dia balepo, dia is through, balepo is to see. What's awesome is the Pharisees can't see through the flesh and blood Jesus to the divine inside him. The disciples can't see through their lack of bread to who Jesus really is. But there's coming a dia balepo where they're going to look through Jesus and see God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, the great confession. Their sight would be restored perfectly. And he sent him home saying, do not even go to the village. So he touches the man a second time. I believe in all my heart. There's no reason for Jesus to do that except to preach to us that sometimes you need a second touch. Jesus heals one time with just a word. Another time he lays hands. But in this he chooses to do it twice. Calvin would say that he does that so that there's no magic formula or process that Jesus randomly does it each time so that people wouldn't think that there's some sort of conjuring happen, but that Jesus is free in each circumstance to do what would best witness to those standing around. Touches him a second time. Both the man that has partial sight and the disciples, they both need a second touch. They both need a second touch. I've realized this about my Christian journey, and maybe we'll end here. Is that my Christian walk and my vision of God is progressive. Like day one that I got saved, I knew him in truth, but I didn't know everything that I know now. I hadn't seen his faithfulness the way that I've seen his faithfulness at this point in my life. And I pray that 10 years from now, I see him more clearly. Have you figured out that this Christian thing, your vision of God, your knowledge of God is progressive? Like you didn't come out of the spiritual womb, born again, right? Being an absolute prayer warrior. You grew in to become a prayer warrior. You got a deeper and deeper vision of him. You didn't come out being the greatest Billy Graham evangelist or the greatest disciple maker in day one. You weren't translating Greek words day two, right? Now that seed is inside you, that power is inside of you. But our revelation of who Jesus is and our understanding of him, is progressive, it grows. 
Is there one person here that would say that you understand Jesus today more than you understood him when you began your journey? Come on. So here's what I, here's what I want out of this passage for me. This has been my prayer this week, and maybe I pray you make it yours. Jesus, touch me again. Jesus, touch me again. Whatever amount I think I see, put your hands on me again and make it more clear. Whatever amount I think I see, put your hands on me and make it more clear. Touch me again, Lord. Do you understand the amount of humility it takes to admit that you maybe don't see him as perfectly as you could? Touch me again, Lord. Because my sight gets more and more clear as I abide with you. So put your hands on me again. Church, my encouragement to you is to walk with Christ all the way to eternity. And one day what you see here in part, dimly as through a mirror, you will see clearly. What you see in part will one day be full. I love the idea that when this man's eyes were finally fully open, the first thing that he saw standing in front of him was Jesus. When I'm buried and in the grave and Christ raises me to eternal resurrection, I don't care about pearly gates or seas or roads with gold. The first thing I want to see to open my eyes, I want it to be like Him. I pray the first thing I see in eternity is Him. I love the hymn, and we're going to sing it, I think. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And things of earth will grow strangely dim. And things of earth will grow strangely dim. Let me pray for you. With every head bowed and maybe with just your heart before the Lord. If you're here and you've never seen Jesus, I... I, I invite you with all of my heart just to, with all the faith with me, I believe for you. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll open your eyes in ways nothing else can. But I particularly want to zoom in with some of the Christians that are here. If you're here and you have let the world and your sin, your job, your hobbies obscure your vision of the kingdom, of who God is and who you are. If that's you here today and you say, I just need another touch from the Lord. I need the great physician to correct my vision. Would you respond in faith and just ask God to do that in your heart? If you're here and you just need that touch, if you raise your hand, I want to pray for you. See it. See the hands.
you're here and you say, there's some things about my walk with God that are out of focus. I see this hand. If you're online with us, God sees your hand. God sees your heart. I'm going to pray for you, and here's what I'm going to believe. Is that God can renew your vision. Such that you can say with the disciples, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then we're going to sing together. We're going to worship through communion. I'm afraid to go to communion unless we've gotten right with the Lord. Unless all we see up here is a cup of juice and a piece of bread. And we don't see the one that was broken for our sins. So let me pray for you. Particularly raise your hands and say, I need that vision to see Christ again. Can I, I'm going to pray for you. Would you stand in agreement with us? Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Father, praise is befitting of you because even though we see you dimly, you see us perfectly. And God, you see the hearts of my brothers and sisters, the sin that so easily blinds, the ignorance that we've come and adjusted and come to accept. God, would you just touch us again? God, would your hand be heavy on our hearts? God, would you give us a vision of you that begins today and goes on into eternity? God, would you give us faith that walks with you until it becomes sight? God, if there's anything in the way being a cataract, remove it, oh God. So we can see the gospel and we can see Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and do powerful things. Work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. We're going to transition in time. Come on, tell us about the gospel.